A few days ago, Delta Flight 1086 arriving from Atlanta touched down at LaGuardia in New York, and when it did so, it veered left, skidded off the runway, and crashed through a fence and came to a hall just a few feet from the water. They were spared a tremendous calamity. Many lives were spared. One of the passengers aboard that flight recounts to ABC News afterwards that when the plane touched the runway and began to skid, he grabbed hold of the, of the seat before him and began to pray. Ostensibly, he prayed as he never prayed before. It's amazing how in times like these, People who are not given to much prayer find a lot of space for prayer. Remember years ago I was on a flight and they, the flight developed a mechanical problem and we, we, we had to turn back and make an emergency landing. And a lot of people there, some were crying and some were praying. Didn't know that there were so many Christians in the world. In fact, at that time I was, a song came to my mind, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. That, that was going through my mind. Very often, prayer is seen as a last resort. It is like an emergency chute, only to be deployed when needed. And yet, the Bible commands us and calls us to be people of prayer, to be people who are persisting in prayer. And these eight verses in Luke chapter 18 calls upon Christians to persist in prayer. You recall that the section preceding this, that is in chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, deals with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have called that the parousia, because that is what the Apostle Paul refers to it as in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. The parousia, the second coming of the Lord. This section talks about the coming of the Lord that would be visible. Nobody will have to doubt whether the Christ has returned because everyone will see him. It talks about the suddenness of his coming. One will have no opportunity to make any alteration or change when he returns. And thirdly, the passage before us speaks of his coming that not only will it be visible and sudden, but it will divide humanity into two camps. In fact, it will determine their destiny. But our Lord Jesus recognizes that the interim period between his first and second coming would take a long time. And because of this, he tells them how they are to live, how they are to conduct themselves in the period between his two comings, his first and second. And that they are in that time in the time in which we live, that the believer must be persistent in prayer, must continually be praying or continually be praying to the Lord. And the parable of the widow and the unjust judge that we read together underscores the necessity of persistence in prayer. And so what I'm going to do as I look at this parable, I'm going to consider first the necessity of persistence in prayer. 
And secondly, the advantage of persistence in prayer. And finally, the rationale for persistence in prayer. First of all, the necessity of persistence in prayer. Luke tells us that Jesus spoke a parable to those who were with him, to his disciples. That men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. In fact, the parable begins unusually because the theme of the parable is given up front so that we should be in no doubt as to what the central message of the parable is all about. It is this. He tells them a parable that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Men ought always to pray. This term, ought, is the term must. Men must always pray. The Gospel of Luke uses this term day, must, on several occasions. It occurs in chapter 2, verse 49, where Jesus tells his mother, his parents, I must be in my father's house. It is used by the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 43 of Luke, I must preach the gospel. And famously, he uses it in chapter 9, verse 22, where he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, again, we see the word being used. Men must always pray and not lose heart. This term, pray, is used here, prosercomai, to offer petition, to beseech God. Prayer is an act of the soul, an act of communication with God. It is to seek God, to speak to God. Prayer consists of a number of elements. It consists of thanksgiving and praise. It, it consists of repentance and petition and intercession. And intercession and petition are very close, but intercession refers to praying on behalf of others, whereas petition, one petitions God for one's needs. Jesus now says men ought always to pray. This is what Luke tells us. And prosercomai refers particularly to petitionary prayer, to seeking God's help. Men ought always to pray. Now, in order to concretize the command that we must pray, and it therefore highlights the necessity of prayer, Luke records a story, a parable, an earthly story that we say that has a spiritual significance. And he tells this story, our Lord, about two characters. The first is that of the unjust judge. He is the villain of the story. This is a man who is hard-bitten, a man who is cold and callous and calculating and self-centered, and, but a man who is fundamentally corrupt, spiritually corrupt, a man who, perv who perverts the course of justice to satisfy his own desires and his own ends. He had, we are told, this is a man who by his own admission does not fear God, nor does he regard or respect man. You see verse 4, 
we are told that he does not fear God nor regard man, a corrupt man. The second person, the second character in this parable is of this widow. She belongs to one of the most vulnerable and powerless classes in Israelite society. The Old Testament, because of the vulnerability of widows and orphans and strangers, the Old Testament gave specific regulation to ensure the care of widows. And in fact, in passages like Exodus 22 and verse 22, God tells Israel how they are to treat and care for the widows. In fact, God in Psalm 68 could, could describe himself as a father of the fatherless and as a defender of widows. That's how God calls himself, a defender of widows. But this man had no regard for her, no had re regard for her troubles. And so we are told that this widow, who lived in the same city with this unjust judge, came to him in verse 3 saying, get justice for me from my adversary. We do not know particularly what was her difficulty, but she sensed that she was being victimized. Perhaps it was that after her husband had died, the regulation in Israel was that the family of her husband should care for her. Since as women in those societies would not own property, it was the duty of the family of the husband to make sure that they cared for her for, from the estate that her husband had left. And it might have been that, therefore, they refused to care for her. Whatever her complaint was, she had no other recourse in that society than to appeal to the court. And what we read, at least, though it's not very evident if you're reading uh, perhaps from the English translation, is that the woman, this widow, that she kept coming, that is the imperfect in verse 3. There was a widow in that city, and she came to him. But it really, literally, she kept coming to him, and she kept saying to him, get justice for me from my adversary. This was an ongoing appeal to him. I need you to judge rightly and judge in my favor on this matter. In verse 4, we are told that this hard-bitten, this cold and corrupt judge refused to listen to her. For we are told, and he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. She keeps pressing this judge, Give me justice. And he at first ignores her cry, but eventually as she continues to come to him, he describes the woman as troubling him. Yet because this widow troubles me, verse 5, and there the language there is in terms of troubling, it means causing me, she's causing me discomfort and distress. Did she follow him around? Did, did he go to, you know, a... a, a, a some kind of a function, a, you know, some celebration, and she turns up there and said, please judge, fall at his feet, please judge, would you, would you give me justice? Whatever she did, he begins to say, she's troubling me, she's causing me discomfort. She's causing me distress. 
And so he decides, he says, he decides to vindicate her, to give her justice, lest by her continual coming she wears him out. Now this, this phrase, wear out, translating the Greek term, literally means lest she gives me a black eye. There are commentators who believe that what worried the judge was that because if he kept on putting her off and ignoring her appeal, she may get so upset that she'll haul off and, and land him one, give him a black eye. That, that he really was afraid that the woman would be so pushed in a corner because he wouldn't respond that she knocks him out, gives him a black eye. And that may be possible, but it seems rather unlikely. I think that what is being said here is metaphorical, and that is why most translations will translate we are out. That, that his fear is not of being knocked out by this widow, but rather his fear is that she would beat him down metaphorically, that emotionally, by the constant coming to him, she would wear him out. And this is what causes him to respond. She becomes such a nuisance that he decides to act simply to get rid of her. Now Jesus uses this woman, a woman of persistence, to encourage the disciples to be persistence, to be persistent in their praying to God, to emulate her practice by being persistent in praying to God for his kingdom to come and for his eschatological justice to arrive. Before we even go further, let me be very clear that this kind of persistence in prayer that Jesus encourages is one that Luke reveals, characterizes the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is not that the Lord Jesus Christ is com commanding his disciples to be persistent in prayer when he himself is not ready to do the same. The example of Luke and the, 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 the passages that Luke referred to show us that Jesus was persistent in, his, in prayer. In fact, some have called Luke the evangelist of prayer because of, the, uh, of how replete this motive this motif finds itself in, in, in not only in Luke, but in this twin work of Acts. It is Luke alone who tells us that when the Spirit of God came upon Jesus Christ at his baptism, that he was praying in Luke chapter 3.21. It is Luke alone who tells us that Jesus often withdrew in the wilderness to pray in chapter 5 verse 16. It is Luke who depicts Jesus as ascending the mountain to pray and continuing all night in prayer before he chose his disciples in chapter 6 verse 12. It is Luke who tells us that our Lord was praying before he posed the question to the disciples, that is, who do the crowds say that I am in chapter 9 verse 18. And Luke, who tells us that he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and goes up to the mountain, and that while he was praying, in fact, Luke says he went up to the mountain to pray, and that while he was praying, he was transfigured in chapter 9. So Luke, in fact, connects the transfiguration of Jesus, the outshining of his glory, with his praying. Luke tells us that when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him in chapter 11, verse 1 of this same book, 
when they asked him to teach them to pray that he himself had been engaged in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, reflected this persistence in prayer before God. And if there's any place in the Gospel of Luke where the persistence of Christ in, pr- in prayer is revealed, it is in chapter 22, when our Lord comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, prays so much until his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He knelt down and he pled with God, remove this cup from me. And then he says, as he embraces the will of God, but not my will, but your, your will be done. Our Lord modeled persistence in prayer and taught his disciples in chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, to pray. In fact, in, in chapter 11, he emphasizes persistence in shamelessness before God. For he tells a story, the parable of a friend at midnight. This fellow goes to her friend at midnight. He has guests who has come and he needs to, to, to have bread from his friend to feed his guests. But his friend is sleeping. It's midnight. And, le- and let's be clear that, that the, the homes in the first century were not the kind of palatial places in which we live. People slept on bare floors. They would have a stove, a wood-burning stove in the middle, and the family slept together around the stove. And so if the father gets up at night, he wakes the entire family. This man comes knocking at the door. He says, look, I am asleep with my family. But this, but this man shows uh, that persistent shamelessness in asking, so much so that the man gets up and gives him the bread. And the Lord Jesus extrapolates first. He says, so I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. You see, the Lord calls for persistence. He tells them, Uh, that if they being evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we see first the necessity of prayer. Men ought always to pray. Men must always pray and not lose heart and not become discouraged. In the parable of this widow who kept on pleading until the judge finally granted her justice, is used then as an example of persistence in prayer. But the passage also brings home the advantage of persistence in prayer. In verses 6 to 8, we have then the conclusion of this parable. Then the Lord said, hear what the the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You will notice that what is happening here is that our Lord Jesus Christ is contrasting God with the unjust judge. And what he is actually saying is that if such a judge, 
such a cold, unsympathetic, and unrighteous man can be prevailed upon to help a woman about whom he cares nothing, how much more will God, the righteous judge, hear the crying of his children day and night to him and respond and vindicate them? If a wicked man can do such an act for a helpless woman, will not God, the righteous judge, avenge his own elect? And so what he's doing here is indicating that those who persist in prayer to God, that God will one day vindicate. An unrighteous judge vindicates a woman, howbeit after much crying and much pleading. But he's saying God is far different. God is far greater, far more righteous. And God is good. You see, it is God who hears the cry of his elect. These are those whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world. You need to understand that if you are a believer, you did not just stumble into salvation. You did not just at some point think it was a good idea to become a Christian. You are a Christian because God loved you from eternity. God set you apart to be his own. Long before you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were in the mind and the heart of God. What I'm trying to say to you, dear friends, is that your relationship with God transcends time. It goes back to eternity. Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. Set us apart. We are God's elect. God has handpicked us unto salvation, not because he foresee faith in us, not because he thought we were good enough, but the, the marvel and the mystery of divine election is that he chose sinners. He chose to make them his own and to give Jesus Christ to die for them. Now, as these who are his elect, as they cry to him, Will God, even though he bears long, even though he takes his time in responding, will he not respond? Will he not vindicate? And the answer there, of course, to this rhetorical question is, yes, the Lord will respond. He will answer. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He asked the question in verse 7. Hear what the unjust judge has said. Shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? And so the, 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 the advantage of crying out to God is that God will hear and God will avenge, God will vindicate those who cry. Verse 8, at least part A of verse 8, reinforces this with an affirmative. In verse, in verse 7, the advantage that God will vindicate is stated in, in the form of a question. But in verse 8, the certainty that God will avenge his elect is affirmed by an affirmative statement. I tell you, most certainly the Lord says that he will avenge, that he will vindicate them speedily. We need to recognize when it says here speedily, the term is often used in an eschatological context. 
This term speedily, for instance, is used in Revelation 20, where the Lord says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly or speedily. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, Revelation 20, verse 20. Speedily, then, does not mean immediately. We know both by experience and both from Scripture that God does not always act immediately and respond immediately to everything we ask. Sometimes we wait a very long time. But when he says speedily, we need, we need to understand that God calculates time differently from us. Peter tells us this in Second Peter chapter 3. He tells us that with God, that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God calculates time, therefore, with a far different measurement than we use. And so what does he say then in verse 8 of our passage in Luke 18? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. It means simply that when God's time has arrived to act, has come, that there will be no delay, that God will move in lightning speed, like a thief in the night, as a flash of lightning, he will act, there will be no delay. And so we see, first of all, the necessity of persistence in prayer. Men ought always to pray and not faint. And secondly, the advantage of persistence in prayer, that God will indeed vindicate his elect who cry to him night and day. But I also want to point out to you one more thing from this parable in terms of a major point. And that is the rationale for persistence in prayer. Why? Why, Why should believers persist in prayer? Now some would answer in a number of ways. One may ask the question, for instance... Must we bombard God with a salvo after salvo of prayer until we beat him down, until he just gives in? You know, do we think of praying to God repeatedly over and over as a form of manipulating God, of boxing God into a corner and extracting what we want from him? We keep on crying, God, you know, give me this, give me this, until God is so tired, he says, you know, just have it. Well, very unlikely that, that it is, that can be done, really. God acts always according to his wisdom and according to his will. Prayer cannot change the mind of God. In fact, it is in prayer that we change to understand and accept the mind of God. So when we are praying, we are not praying to change God's mind. We, are not, we, we, we do not have a God who is unsympathetic and reluctant to hear our petition. So why pray? Well, we may say that prayer does a number of things. One of the things that prayer enables us to do is to grow in patience. And so we come repeatedly to God in, in, in prayer that we may develop Christian character, particularly patience. But the direction in which this passage leads us is not to teach us that prayer enables us to develop patience. Rather, it leads in another direction in verse 8b. For there, Jesus asked the question... Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And what our Lord is asking is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people persisting in faith? The, the answer to that question is 
unashamedly, yes, he will find those who continue in faith. But then the question must then be, how will believers be persisting in faith when Christ comes? And here, the answer is to be found in the context of these verses. That is simply that it is by persevering and persisting in prayer that believers persist in faith. That if you and I are to continue to live out our conviction and our trust in God, if we are to persist in faith to the end, we must persist in prayer. That without persisting in prayer, there is no persisting in faith. These two things are joined together. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now this may sound a bit strange. We may say, well, it is God who causes us to persist. You speak about the doctrines of grace, and you talk about the perseverance of the saints. And I'm not denying that every Christian, everyone who has been bought by the blood of Christ, everyone who has been touched by grace, everyone who has been regenerated and given new life of the Spirit will be there at the end because they are kept by the Spirit of God. I accept that wholeheartedly. But I also know that, teach, that Scripture teaches us that while God's, God works powerfully in the life of the Christian, he works through means. He always works through means, at least when it concerns the Christian and salvation. When God decided to save man, you know, he, he could simply have just canceled our sins. He could have just changed your heart overnight, just like that. What did he do? He sent Jesus Christ to die. He demands faith in Christ as a, the means by which we enter into the Christian life. God uses means. And when you are saved... Do you realize that God, God had the power, he has the power, to put in your head all that is in Scripture. He could have taken everything out of Scripture and just drop it in your head. And you walk around like living Bibles. You know, just memorizing old, you know, the, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. You just get up in the morning and just say to everybody else, just like that. But God didn't do that. He demands that we are to be diligent, be diligent to study the Scriptures. God uses means. And one of the means that God uses to enable us to persevere in faith is by our perseverance in prayer. We have said it on many occasions that prayer is the God-ordained means by which we receive the things we need from him. God has given us one means by which he will give us things and it is through, his, and through the prayer of his people. And so, we are to persevere in prayer because it is essential for persevering in faith. Our Lord Jesus would have us do this because he realizes that during the interim period, believers will be severely tested as they live out the Christian life. And as they wait, and his coming seems to be longer and longer, they will be tempted to become discouraged. But as they pray... He will strengthen their faith, that they persevere. You will see that it is in, in prayer that God strengthens faith. You see that in Jesus Christ himself. He goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he prays. 
And when he comes back, he faces temptation from the devil. A temptation is centrally to distrust the will and purpose of God. But our Lord Jesus Christ stood firm, resisted the devil, and continued to trust in God. Why? Because he had been empowered in prayer. You see the same thing in our Lord when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying to God. As he prayed, he was strengthened by an angel. And so that he could trust in God that even as he embraced the cup, the bitter cup, that God would raise him from the dead and his Holy One would not see corruption. What I'm saying to you then, prayer and persistence in prayer is the means that God has given to us that we should persist in faith. God, who declares all things in heaven and on earth, would have us continue to pray because it is in prayer that he opens his hands and strengthens us and strengthens our faith. And as we seek him, we become more and more like Abraham, who was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, who did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith because he had become convinced that God possessed the power to perform the things that he had planned and purposed and promised to his people. Well, the necessity of persistence in prayer, the advantage of persistence in prayer, and the rationale for persistence in prayer. Some of you, perhaps even right now, are going through hardships. Others of you will, over time, face hardship. The scriptures would have you and have me and all of us know that we are always to pray and not give up. That we are to persist and persevere in prayer. Sometimes in our hardship and in our suffering, we begin to feel that God does not hear or God does not care. The days turn into months and the months into years and the years, into decades, and sometimes there is no answer from God. But hear the word of the Lord. Men are always to pray and not to lose heart. That even when God seems not to respond, even when heaven seems like bronze to our prayers, we are to continue praying. We are to be like the men of the Old Testament who cried to the Lord from unto the Lord into into God. They raised their prayers into heaven. We are to be men like Jacob at the brook of Jabbok when he wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. And as morning began to dawn and the angel wanted to leave, he clung to him and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. We must have that tenacity of spirit to pray and to seek God and to continue praying. Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. Men are always to pray and not to lose heart. And if there is any problem, any scourge or blight in the Christian life, it is this, that we are not persevering in prayer. The statistics, the statistics are unflattering. The statistics do not compliment us when it tells us how often Christians pray and how often pastors pray. We, we are not praying people. And part of the reason is that we do not understand our weakness and our vulnerability. 
We don't understand that we need God if we are to succeed in life. We must continue to pray. Men are always to pray and not to lose heart. And we are to continue praying fundamentally because God hears and answers prayer. That our Father is a gracious God and He cares that we are His own. That He answers our prayers. Sometimes He says no. And it's very, it's a wonderful thing that he says no. You know, if you have a child, and every time the child comes to you and asks you for something and you say yes, you would put him in a lot of trouble and perhaps yourself into a lot of trouble. So God is a wise father. But he always answers. And you ought to know that when you cry to God, that he will vindicate. You are his by choice. And you are his by price. He bought you through the blood of Christ. Remember that he answers, he will vindicate, but he also answers in his own way. William Bartley, the New Testament commentator, tells of a famous Scottish scholar who saw a job when he was a young lad, saw a secretarial job being advertised, and he prayed about it and applied for this secretarial job. And he prayed, but he didn't get it. And so he went back to school. And years later, he became a tremendous erudite scholar. Worldwide respect for him and affection. Did God answer his prayer? Yes, he did. Not in the way he expected. He wanted to be a secretary. God made him a scholar. What God was saying to him, you know, what you're asking from me is too low. So he gave him more. Then he asked. God always answers. And Bartley reminds us that before we go about talking and saying God doesn't answer our prayers, we need to wait until the end of our lives. Because sometimes it will take that long. You really can't know the prayers God has answered until you stand in glory and he shows you. You see, God will always vindicate his children. You see that in the writings of Luke, in the book of Acts, the 120, they are in the upper room and they are praying. They are praying for the Spirit of God that Jesus promised that would be sent to them. And as they are praying, the heavens parted and there comes a mighty rushing wind. And he sees tongues as though fire falling on the disciples. Do you realize how powerful this is? Because what it teaches us is that God fulfills his plan of salvation based upon the praying of his people. Can, do you understand that? That the plan that God had purpose in eternity to, to send Jesus Christ, he did so because there were people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and people like these who are praying for the Messiah. God fulfills salvation history according to the praying of these people. The early church went out and did marvelous things. But the church that saw great conversions was a church that was engaged and continued in the breaking of bread, in fellowship, in the apostles' teaching, and in prayer. 
God brings his will to bear and reveals his purpose in salvation and fulfills his purpose as his people pray. That is a mystery that I cannot understand. It's a door I cannot open. But the scripture is laid out. You see, God vindicates those who cry to him. You see that even in Acts 12, Peter is in prison. I won't go down this road too long, but Peter's in prison. The early church is praying, and they're putting up a lot of prayers to heavens for Peter. And so God responds, and he sends an angel who takes Peter out of prison and brings him to the very gate of the house where, where the church is praying. And when Peter is knocking, out comes a little girl, Rhoda, and she identifies Peter, runs back in excitement to the people who are praying, and says, Peter's at the gate. And what do they say to her? You are beside yourself, meaning you are mad. You have lost your mind. The very people who are praying, Lord, deliver Peter, tells this little girl, you know, you are crazy. It's his spirit. You have encountered his spirit. You see, God responds to prayer. God responds to the tears of his people. And you are to continue praying. You see, tears may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You may be beaten down, broken down, hurt, abused, and suffering, but you are to continue to lift up your hearts to God, knowing that he sees and understands, and that in due time, he will vindicate you. He will turn your mourning into joy and your sorrow into song. Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. You ought to pray because in prayer, God strengthens your faith. God does mighty things on your behalf. You ought to continue to pray because as you pray, your faith is strengthened. You're growing spiritually. It is, it is the powerhouse of the church and it is the powerhouse of the Christian. Let me say this. I'm going to close. Prayer is the powerhouse of the church and it's the powerhouse of the Christian. If you are to see any good in your life, in your family, in your society, it will never happen apart from prayer. Men ought always to pray. I know this business of prayer is a difficult business. I understand that we face many challenges in prayer. Our minds wander. I understand that because, like you, I face the same challenges. But I want you to know that this is the sweetest business in which you can be engaged because prayer is entering into business with God, the King of glory. Remember that God is more willing to hear than you are to ask. Men are always to pray and not to lose heart. May God help us that in this church and in our homes, we will lift up the incense of prayer to God what does he require of you? That as you wait his coming, you continue to seek him in prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Jesus' sake.